Hello and welcome to Witchy Wellness Radio. I'm your host, Lauren Cholantani, women's holistic health coach and fellow recovering perfectionist. This podcast was created to show you that your body is not in the way, it is actually leading your way. I am very particular about the type of CBD and hemp products that I use. There's so much hype and lack of testing and quality in the industry. So the company that I love and use is Evo Hemp. Not only do they have a beautiful product like hemp seeds, CBD oil, gummies, even hemp chocolate, protein bars, protein powder. They also support a 40-acre co-op farm in Minnesota, which is farmer-owned, focusing on bringing quality and innovation back to Black, Indigenous, and other socially disadvantaged farmers. So if you are looking into trying any type of CBD or hemp products, head over to evohemp.com. The link is in the show notes. And make sure you use code WITCHY, W-I-C-T-H-Y, for 20% off of your purchase. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Witchy Wellness Radio. This is a show you learn how your body and emotions are not in the way. They're actually leading the way. And today we're talking with Sarah Payton. She's an author and consultation, or sorry, is that a consultation? Constellation. Constellations. Yep. I know. I saw it in my brain. It's not working today. So I will redo that. What the heck's she doing with constellations? Constellations. Oh my goodness. Okay. And today we are talking with Sarah Payton, author, constellations facilitator, certified nonviolent communication trainer, and neuroscience educator. Integrates constellations, brain science, and the use of resonant language to heal trauma with exquisite and warm gentleness. She teaches and lectures internationally and is the author of the book, Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. And our second book, Your Resonant Your Resonant Self Workbook is a relational neuroscience of the unconscious contracts that constellations so often let us disentangle. In her third book, Affirmations for Turbulent Times, she is is also available from any bookseller. You can find her online at sarahpayton.com. I'm so excited. We can go so many ways with this (laughs) this beautiful topic of really our, our full human potential. So I'm so excited to, to welcome you to the show today, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Lauren. I'm so happy to be here. This is, um, this, this idea of the full human potential is just my absolute favorite thing. My favorite thing is working in this field because you get to do a little bit of work with somebody, untangle an unconscious contract, release some old programming, write some new code and watch people go out into the world and do marvelous things. It's quite, quite stunning. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's our true potential. I think for me and so many of you listening, I'm sure are here because you've experienced contrast or you are experiencing this contrast or, you know, dark night of the soul and you're, you're searching, searching for answers. And that. I have now, retrospectively, you might feel grateful for those dark nights of the soul, which led you where you are now. And I always love starting off by asking the guest, you, Sarah, 
how did you get into this work? Did you, was this a healing journey or dark night of the soul? Cause I love hearing, ah. hearing people's stories. Well, I started writing this first book, Your Resonant Self, when I was 50. I had a 50th birthday party. Oh, wow. And three of the women who were at my 50th birthday party, I'm going to be 60 this year, came up to me and they said, you need to write a book. And I had been learning about relational neuroscience because I was so interested when I found out that there was a reason I couldn't meditate. I tried to meditate. I'd read about how wonderful it was for your health and well-being. I tried to, you know, turn in that direction. And every time it was like opening the doors to hell to just sit down and, and ask myself to be quiet. <laughs> so my dark night of the soul really kind of lasted about 40 years until I got, I got the information about the brain. And that started to really change me. And that was why the people said, you've got to write a book. And that's why the book came out. And it's... <laughs> So coming from uh, from my brain not being a nice place to live, but rather being hell, which comes from both this life trauma and transgenerational trauma. It comes from our grandmothers, our mothers, uh, ourselves, of course, our fathers. But there's some direct transmission stuff that happens in the mother's line because you were being formed as an egg inside of your mother's fetal body when she was in your grandmother's womb. So we all have direct download from our grandmothers in terms of epigenetics and the way that our, our cells are kind of wired to anticipate a safe or a dangerous world. And then, um, and then of course, from our mothers, we download her brain. There's more direct correspondence between a mother's brain and a daughter's brain than any other correspondence. You know, we can pick up our father's brain patterns. Boys can pick up their mother's brain patterns. But the most most one-to-one -one correspondence is mothers to daughters, which means that we, <laughs> that we carry our moms with us everywhere we go. And it might be nice to just like get them held really sweetly so that they learn inside of us, even if they've already passed, if they learn inside of us how to be kind. Wow, it changes our whole world, the way we take care of ourselves. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of remothering myself. I like to think yeah. that, you know, even though I, I love my mom and she sometimes listens to the yeah. show, yeah. you know, there are things in me that I realized I needed to remother, not because she didn't love me, because it was just, like you said, epigenetically, culturally, lineage passed down. and. Yes. And we, you're able to change that. And it's so, so powerful. Um, I always like looking at families and looking at the, the oddball out, you know, you see families with genetic history of certain kinds of cancer, like, oh, well, it's, it's part of my family. It's in my DNA, in these affirmations that people say. And then you see the one outlier who didn't get sick, who didn't have that. I mean, you, nine times out of 10, look at them. They're completely different personality, live a completely different life, have a different set of beliefs. Yeah. And it's because they created their own chosen life of who, who they wanted to be and were able to take a look at what they were downloaded with. And like you said beautifully before, is we can reprogram, yes. reprogram our brains, reprogram our lives. Yes. Yes. And, um, and uh, what we're what we're reprogramming is, in particular, uh, th this 
and it's actually very sweet for our mothers as well. I have a friend who says, uh, she, she said, I ask myself, out of all of the complaints that humans have, the most universal complaint is our complaints about our mothers. Everybody's got complaints about their mothers. Why? Mothers are the most well-intentioned people in the world. As a general rule, they love their kids. They want their kids to be well. They're trying their best. Why are there so many complaints about mothers? And she said, I think it is because life itself flows through the mother body. And life itself is a glorious, amazing energy. And if we get confused between the human body that was our mother and this glorious life energy that's coming just from life itself through women to babies and, and then spreading on with their children, then what we, we have is this amazing, this amazing pure love. And then we have a human and of course, everybody's going to go, what, what's up with the problem here? Why is this human not doing the pure love thing? <laughs> so I like that exploration. It gives me a relaxation in relationship to my own mom, who was lovely and also extremely traumatized. And so, you know, her the passage of pure life energy through her was a little fractured. But if we realize that the life energy is just coming to us and there's that wonderful person who tried as hard as they could, no matter how traumatized they were, then there we are. We've got this different experience of being mothered. It's so beautiful. Yeah. For me, it was, I didn't get into it through that Avenue. I think similar to your stories, you know, years of anxiety and feeling depressed and just I was searching for something that I didn't know was there didn't know know was possible and still on that journey right there's always another layer I I never want to say that I am completely healed or I'm you know because I don't think I would be here I think there's always another facet of the truth another layer um but it started with me not wanting to be where I was at you know not liking where I was at um, somebody listening who might be in that stage, like, where can we go from there? Because a lot of times we're motivated out of this contrast, out of not liking where we are, rather than, you know, the, the positive, I want to, I want to be my full potential. Yes. Well, I, I always think it's very sweet to begin with just a single breath, because it's so doable. So if just for one inhale, we have affection and warmth and understanding for our own selves just with that inhale i mean you can kind of feel it that one even one inhale is a lot to ask a brain that's not <laughs> a very nice place to live there's an immediate protest it's like i i'm not going to be affectionate with this person this person sucks i wish i were a different person why would i be affectionate with this person and, uh, and as we learn about trauma, what we learn is that that's the voice of trauma, that, that, that that's the way that trauma speaks to us is with cruelty and reproach and insult and um, scorn and contempt, that whenever we go into those places, lack of affection, coldness, indifference, all of those are the voice of trauma rather than the voice of truth. <laughs> 
And so I, I love for people to just begin by practicing just a little bit of warmth and affection for themselves for one breath a day. Yeah, that, yeah, that sometimes that seems easy. Sometimes that seems like <laughs> a mountain to do, right? Yes. Um, I wanted to talk about, I mean, you started your first book about residence. What, what is this, what is, what is residence? What does it mean? And how can we, you know, tap into this? Well, I always love to use my cello for resonance because it's so illustrative of what we're talking about. And so if we've got a cello, and if some people are very familiar with cellos and some people aren't, the reason I started playing a cello also at age 50, it's like age 50 changed me, was because when you when you make it make sound, it vibrates it's vibrating so palpably I can feel it in my own body I feel it in in my hands I feel it in my in my torso and if I had another cello here right beside and I were to strum the strings this other cello would vibrate with the same musical tones as this one unless we had it clamped down so that it couldn't vibrate at all and this is what human bodies do. We are made to vibrate with each other. Now, living in difficult situations and difficult families means that we sometimes learn to clamp our bodies down so that they won't vibrate or to live 10 feet away from them, to kind of live our life loosely anchored to a physical body, but not really in it in order to avoid exactly this, the vibration that all of us are made to do with one another. And so your resonant self is, is all about how do we harness this vibration to take care of ourselves in very beautiful, warm, nurturing, understanding ways. And that the resonance is not all about you know, nice, nice, nice. If we're playing a Shostakovich uh, symphony as part as part of a symphony on the cello, it's intense. It's intense music. It's got anger. It's got rage. It's got death. It's got uh, suffering. It's got it's got all kinds of things, and that's what happens in human bodies as well, which of course can be sometimes a little overwhelming or terrifying, even. Yeah, and so people just learn to clamp themselves down so that they will not resonate with each other. They will not have to step into these deep places or swim in these deep waters. But these are our home waters. These are waters that everybody belongs in. This is the human condition, and we don't need to be afraid of it. How beautiful. Yeah, I think just being okay with like, you know, the music you just talked about, the anger and the rage, it's allowing yourself to feel. Yeah. Allowing you to feel that resonance. And that was probably the biggest part of my own healing journey was realizing to feel and let go of all emotions that they, you know, they're here as messengers and they're fleeting and they're here to help. That's why the that's why the the intro is your body and emotions are not in the way they're leading the way because right. they're all they're all here just trying to you know trying to let us know <laughs> yeah. yeah 
one of the amazing pieces about research, uh, the, one of the most amazing pieces of research that I have run across is the research that says that if we try to turn down our rage circuit, so all of us have different pathways that emotion and motivation travel on in relationship to our bodies. And when people feel angry, the skin temperature on their arms goes up one to two degrees Fahrenheit. When people are scared, the skin temperature on their legs goes up one to two degrees Fahrenheit. When people are disgusted, the skin temperature inside, not the skin temperature, but the torso temperature inside the torso goes up one to two degrees Fahrenheit. So our bodies are fully participating members <laughs> of this thing called a human life. And our bodies uh, have messages for us. And when our bodies are carrying a message of rage, that's an important message. That means resources are threatened. And so um, what people have found with research is that if people try to turn down the rage circuit all by itself, they can't. If it, they have to turn down somebody's all of somebody's life energy, they have to turn down joy, they have to turn down pleasure, they have to turn down fear, they have to turn down care and love, they have to turn down sexuality, they have to turn down disgust, they have to turn down all of these emotions, alarmed aloneness, and all of the emotions that let us know what we need in life. And and. I think that's quite an interesting thing that if we just try to turn down our rage, we don't get to, we have to diminish everything. What needs to happen with rage is it needs to be paired with love. And then it's no longer dangerous. Once it's paired with love, when we know what we're angry about, when we know what we love, it might be our own freedom, but it might be, you know, a child's safety. It might be um, a certain legal right that's important to us. Don't know what it is, but there's something that we love if we're angry. Mm, yeah, for me, realizing and kind of going to the subconscious of whether it's my childhood or like you said, generationally, where did I first feel this feeling? Because sometimes I don't know, you know, where is this, where is this coming from? It's just my body. I do a lot of breath work and that kind of stuff. So sometimes I bring up emotions just by doing my own practices alone. And that for me is a really nice kind of window in to where it might be coming from or the themes, you know, in my life. If somebody is kind of stuck and like, okay, I feel all this emotion. And especially if you tuned it down, it, it, it can feel, I don't want to say overwhel overwhelming, a lot, a lot. That's why you toned it down. So what are, and from that loving place, which I love how you just described that, how can we start to be present with it to kind of, to kind of do that archaeological dig in order to pair that with that love? Yeah. And if there's anger in our family, what did our family love? If anger is one of the traits that survival traits that's being passed down from generation to generation, because you can discover all kinds of things with breath work. You can discover all kinds of transgenerational experiences that are just like living here in ourselves. So we do the same thing with family anger. We're like, what did this family love? What resources did this family lose? And so often for those of us in North America, there were lost resources of land or, or of um, safety or of choice in, in the 
places that we that our ancestors lived in before they came to North America and and in North America as well you know people really you know from generation to generation trying to learn how to best live in this society and how to take care of their kids and how to have a house if they want one and how to deal with the of course the terrible burden of uh, of the genocide of the Native American peoples of the of the loss of 80 to 90 percent of the indigenous population due due to um, epidemics and pandemics and diseases that were brought with first contact. So there's there's always there's always more to hold. I think we hold our own conscious stuff and then we start to move towards holding our our own pre-verbal stuff and then we move to holding our our, our family stuff and then we kind of go to holding the systemic stuff it's quite a healing journey for all of us and certainly as you said it's something that is infinite in some ways so hopefully we'll enjoy it yeah hopefully yeah well it's the journey to enjoy it enjoy the journey and the process and the contrast because that I mean life wouldn't exist without darkness and light feminine and masculine yin and yang like it's that's that's how creation itself works and the more I sink into that and can surrender into that and know that it's happening for me and that if it's coming up for me now I'm ready I can handle this it might not be pretty it might be messy (laughs) but I'm ready I'm ready yeah yeah the other thing that people can do Uh, Just starting out is to start to think about their unconscious contracts. So what happened for me in writing the books was I wrote the first book, the Your Resonant Self book, which is the relational neuroscience of self-compassion. It's like, how do we turn toward ourselves with warmth? This is all the tools of like turning towards yourself with warmth. And then I was traveling around the world because it was before the pandemic and I was talking to people and people were like, yes, it's beautiful. It's important. And it worked for 80% of them. And 20% of the people were, they said, it, it makes perfect sense, but I can't do it. It goes somehow against my integrity to be warm with myself. And so then I started to think, how can being warm with ourselves go against our integrity? And I began to work with unconscious contracts that people would have. Like, and then I wrote this book, which is all about the unconscious contracts and accompanies the first book. But what people will do is they'll say, I will believe that I'm bad in order to make my mother right, no matter the cost to myself. Or I will believe that I'm not enough in order to make sense of a world and a life where I was continually told that I was not enough. Have you taken the anxious personality quiz yet? Real talk. Not all anxiety is created equal, nor can you manifest the same way with it. Yes, that's true. You can manifest with your anxiety. I created this quiz so you can figure out how your anxiety manifests in your life, your emotions, your thoughts, and your actions. And when we have more insight into what our triggers and how to catch them faster, we're able to make lasting change and amplify what we want to manifest in our life. You can find out your anxious personality type at anxiousquiz.com.
www.thepowerofthenow.com. Learn to embrace and manifest with your anxiety today. Or I will believe that there's something wrong with me in order to save myself from the heartbreak of hope that I will be loved, no matter the cost to myself. So all of us have these kind of if-then structures that are linked to the limbic system in the brain. And all of us, whenever we're running up against any kind of limitation, we're hitting something like an unconscious contract. And many people know what the first part of the contract is. They know that they won't be nice to themselves or that they'll always believe that they're not enough. But they don't think about why they're doing it. That's the thing that doesn't happen. And so the workbook uh, asks a series of questions that people get to answer about their in-order tos. So they have they have their if and then. They have if uh, I'm sad, that's their if. I won't let anyone see me cry. Uh, and that's their, they know that they do that part. But they have to then say, in order to, what's their in order to? Are they saving themselves from humiliation? Are they belonging to their family because nobody in their family ever cried? All of these kinds of questions are completely explorable. And we can we can begin to look at them. And we can, once we turn the if-then in order to, and no matter the cost to myself, into spoken language, we're moving it out of the part of the brain that holds procedural memory and thinks that this is just the way life is. So I'm just bad. That's just the way life is. And so when when we begin to look at I'm, I think I'm bad because it will do this for myself or my family. Then all of a sudden we go, oh, well, I don't need to do that anymore. And then we start to be able to rewrite our code. If I'm sad, then I might let people know that I'm sad if I feel safe with them. And they have proven themselves worthy and capable of holding sadness. And I might very well share it with them. I might let someone see me cry. When people start to change their contracts and, and change their limitations, and it changes their stories about who they are, things they thought were set in stone are no longer set in stone. I love that. It's such a simple, powerful tool that, you know, you might think, well, that seems a little too easy, but you know, I, I, I've done that so many times with pre-paving how I want to feel. It's like my body is addicted to and programmed to the, that unconscious contract, that emotion around it. So even if I'm aware of it, I love how you simplify that. I need to reprogram for how I do want to feel and what are some of the action steps that I can do. Yeah. So to to replace where that uh, once very well-paved pathway <laughs> lived. And the wonderful thing is that um is that is that once things get named, they really shift quite easily. It's what's keeping them anchored are hidden roots of 
of pain and relational bargaining, shall we say. The ways that our little infant bodies want, loved, loved, loved the people we were born to and wanted to help balance them. When we're infants, the only thing we have is our nervous systems. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that is a yeah. that's very interesting of a topic. Yes, this comes out of the work of Beatrice Beebe, who is a researcher in New York City who's been doing close video reviews of mothers and babies at the age of four months. So before babies start to talk. And what she discovered is that by the age of four months, an infant has completely edited their facial expression vocabulary to match their mother's facial expression vocabulary. So if their mother can't, can't do sadness, by which I mean when the baby is sad, the mother's facial expression expresses surprise or smiles instead of taking a moment to go, oh, of course you're sad. Um, then the baby lets go of sadness as a facial expression. And they begin to just do the facial expressions that mom can easily reflect. So the, the type of emotion that mom can easily reflect and the degree to which mom can be with intensity are internalized by a human infant by the time that baby is four months old. The baby takes it in and metabolizes it and starts to believe because the mom is the baby's measuring stick for how to be human. The baby decides, I can't show my sadness. It's very early. I will not show my sadness in order to support my mom. I will not show my sadness in order not to be left. I will not show my sadness in order not to feel crazy when my mom is surprised by my sadness. All of these things come from those very early experiences of infancy. And one of the things we don't realize is the extent to which our infant selves loved, loved more than anything, loved the people we were born into. And there's so much love in babies. And, they, and so they try to help. And so they try to help if it seems like sadness is hard for their moms, they try to help by not being sad. If it seems like their mom goes into a depression and they can bring their mom out by being playful or angry, then they'll learn to do those things to bring their mom back to life. And so then for the rest of their life, they're wandering around finding people who are sad or depressed and trying to make them happy because that's what they're supposed to do from this baby love, from leveraging their own nervous systems to contribute to the world. And we carry these contracts forward out of infancy. Does that make a little bit of sense, Lauren? Oh, it totally does. I just was so interested in hearing more about that, that little teaser you gave us. Um, that makes complete sense. And I've had hypnosis done where I have felt that love as a baby. It's as an infant state for, for my parents. And it was the most powerful, unconditional love experience yeah. that I've had. And I can totally relate because I just was totally. radiating love mm. as a little, as an infant. And it was, you know, when, when you get to that high state of love and gratitude, there's just, a, uh, that's that's what that's who we are. That's where we yeah. came from. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. And uh, and we just uh, we, we don't we often don't remember our great capacity to love. Yeah. 
well, let's talk about our great capacity to love, but also as humans, like what, what does that look like for you? Cause I know we've talked a lot about how to, how to become aware and how to kind of reprogram to our potential, but what does this potential look like? I, I see it as the next evolution of humanity, which gets me excited. <laughs> oh, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I love what resonance does with humans and how they relax and, and how shame drops away as we begin to understand the extent to which being shamed and the use of shame is a tool for human societies to make everybody standardized and to make everybody belong. And we start to go, oh, maybe this shame I have about the way I look or my body or my hair or, or the way I talk or that I snort when I laugh or, you know, whatever it is that I've been teased about or have told is not good or have been scorned for, we start to go, oh, th- those things aren't true. It's not true that my hair needs to be some particular way. It's not true that my that I'm not going to be loved because of my skin. You know, this is absurd stuff. This is stuff that's visited upon us by society and media. And um, <laughs> there's just so many ways in which we get these messages about about what is acceptable and what is going to get us to be loved, that we can start to give up as we go down this path. Yeah, and I think for me, it's always the darkest before the dawn, right? Yeah. It, it definitely, when I come up against myself or any situation or emotions and it seems like it's just too much, then then there there comes this this breakthrough, this glimmer of hope, uh, listening to a podcast, like maybe mm-hmm. one of you are listening to Sarah here today. And that's why I started this podcast, because I believe that our intuition, our souls send those little sparks of inspiration to us, mm-hmm. right? When we need it the most, right? Mm-hmm. When they, we know that we can actually change because Sometimes, in my experience, it takes that level <laughs> yeah. to be able to want to change and, and yeah. to start to look into, well, the only way is up from here. Right. And who, who am I really? Who am I yes. really? Yes. And what happens? How do, what will our discomfort tell us if we don't medicate it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So beautiful. Um, I The time always flies when I have wonderful guests on the show like yourself was there anything else that you feel called to talk about or to kind of wrap up before we start to close the show down today the wrap up is just you know it's okay to make your brain a good place to live and it's possible and then the neural growth that happens that makes brains good places to live it's it's available to us into our into our deathbeds uh, until we're 97 years old and dying. Those neurons are growing and wanting to be fed and nourished and experience rich, rewarding relational connection. We lose the neurons that tell us where our car keys are. We lose the neurons that tell us where we parked our car, but we don't lose the neurons of love and relationship. Those grow and grow and grow. And what a beautiful note to close the show on. Thank you so much for your presence, your love, your wisdom here today. And we close the show out the same way every week 
how may we, the listeners, as a big hug of gratitude, be of service for you in return today? Oh, you could uh, go to, uh, if you like the book, you could do a uh, 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 Goodreads or an Amazon review. And if you um, if you would like to start playing with meditations at sarahpayton.com and at yourresonantself.com, there are free downloads of all the meditations in both the books. So you can start today if you want to uh, make oh, your brain a good place to live. So beautiful. Paying it forward. Paying it forward. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the show today. It was such such an honor to talk about human potential with you today. Resonant oh. potential. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. I love that resonant potential. It's lovely to be here. And remember, open up, surrender, trust, and let your body